It's January 22nd, the feast day of St. Vincent of Saragossa, and this is Witch Hassle. Let's get to work. everyone and welcome to Witch Hassle. I'm your host Cooper Wilhelm and I'm excited to bring you the first episode of 2020. It's a big old episode. We've got astrological elections from Frank Savilli coming up as well as my very long interview with Peter Biebergall who is the author of such books as Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll, and Strange Frequencies which looks at the intersections of technology and occultism. It is very exciting to uh, start the year on such a big old foot, and I am very optimistic about 2020, because despite the fact that the year in the first few weeks has yielded every kind of misery and horror the easy-bake oven of the human mind can muster, there are a lot of wonderful things coming up as well. I've got some really fabulous interviews lined up for future episodes. The show has gotten its first Patreon supporter. Thank you so much to them, and I am getting much more confident in my own private practice of planetary grimoire magic. So that's that's fun for me. And speaking of that, you know, one Patreon supporter, if you want to go and support the show on Patreon, by all means, go to patreon.com slash witchhassle, where if you give $5 a month, you'll have access to the Patreon-only episodes, and if you give even more money in various tiers, other goodies will come your way or be available to you. So please do check those things out. But with all this optimism, though, I, I am striding into 2020 thinking a lot about curses. A lot of people tend to shy away from the idea of doing curses, even if they get themselves deeply ensconced in the idea of doing magic or doing occultism, because they're worried about the ethical concerns of causing harm, even if that is harm that is done in the name of defending oneself or one's community or the defenseless in some general or specific way. And honestly, being hesitant before embarking on any kind of project of violence is commendable and good. I, I feel like violence as an option is uh, far too often lauded in our society. You know, it really troubles me that so many cop movies in particular tend to end with the presumably guilty party just dying, which I know is done primarily probably for a sense of narrative cleanliness where you don't have to worry about what happens after they get apprehended. But that idea that, you know, violence is much easier to think about than a court trial is very upsetting to me. But Despite the sort of basic ethical concerns about doing harm, I think there's also this pervasive notion that would give many would-be hex-throwers pause that any bad thing you do or ill will you put into the universe will be visited upon you in return by the universe. A common articulation of this would be Monique Wilson's Wiccan Rule of Three, or the Threefold Law, that any energies one puts into the universe will be visited upon them again in threefold strength. And I have a lot of problems with this idea. For one, it doesn't really match up with what I see in the world. You know, I look around me and the cruel and the wicked do tend to prosper. Uh, Donald Trump is the president. Henry Kissinger is still alive. George W. Bush is living out his days painting and rubbing elbows with Ellen DeGeneres rather than sitting in a cold jail cell in The Hague. The list goes on. 
and on, and all of it would seem to contradict this idea that doing evil somehow leads to evil happening to you. But more so than that, what I really find troubling about this idea of the universe enacting in our own lifetime some kind of retribution is that it seems like a way of promoting the thought that if bad things happen to us, we must somehow deserve them. You get laid off because some big venture capital firm bought the toy store you work at so they could use it as collateral for huge loans or to sell off the assets, and you might be tempted to attribute your personal misfortune to some ill will you sent into the world rather than to the machinations of capitalism and the people who actually did this thing to you. Or worse, you might be tempted to think, this bad thing has happened to me, people did it to me, but the universe will take care of justice on my behalf. I don't need to actually do anything. So, you know, although I think we should definitely enter into the idea of doing a curse with a certain measure of caution and concern about the ethical implications of what we're approaching, I think these kinds of blanket warnings that doing any kind of curse work is going to cause the universe to fling uh, three times or some other magnitude of what we throw into it back at us is disempowering. So I, I do not support such notions. But, you know, even if we don't feel that curses are for us and we have no interest in doing curses, there are a lot of interesting problems and puzzles to figure out with these that are worth considering. For example, most traditional curses call for using a personal concern from the target, you know, a lock of hair, a scrap of their clothing, some physical link to the person you are trying to curse. But what if you can't get one of those because the target of the curse is someone you never interact with, like for example, a national politician? Or what if the target is not a person at all? You know, it's hard to get a lock of Amazon.com's hair or, uh, you know, a drop of blood from the finger of Wells Fargo. And one potential answer to this question might have to do with working with audio. I've been thinking a lot about audio and curses recently, largely because of a particular piece of audio that keeps running through my head that is sort of pointed and, and violent enough that it almost feels like a curse in its own right. If you haven't heard this already, it is probably because your brain hasn't been melted by the 2020 Democratic primary to the extent that mine has. And if that is the case, then um, I salute you and celebrate you and hope that you can more or less stay unburdened by knowing so much about the primary or fixating so much upon it as I have. But this audio is from an exchange between the New York Times's Benjamin Applebaum and presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg, and is in regards to Buttigieg's work for the consulting firm McKinsey. Uh, while working at McKinsey, one of Buttigieg's clients was the uh, Canadian grocery store chain Loblaws, which has admitted to being part of a conspiracy across the Canadian economy to fix the prices of bread in Canadian stores. Here is the clip about that. You've been on the front lines of corporate downsizing. You've been on the front lines of corporate price fixing. You've been on the front lines of our misadventures in foreign policy. You've had direct experience of many of the things that make a lot of young people very angry about the way that this country uh, is operating right now. You don't seem to embody that anger. So the proposition that I've been on the front lines of corporate price fixing is just to 
get that out of the way. You um, worked for a company that was fixing bread prices. Doesn't that just give you shivers of joy? The cold, affectless tone of judgment that Applebaum uses in grilling Buttigieg on this. Like, it feels like that might as well be a curse. Like, his voice is just... You know, it's like a Werner Herzog narration that is just framing Buttigieg irrevocably as this bread villain. Like, that's the only role he can ever fill in the ecosystem of the universe. You worked um, for a company that was fixing bread prices. It's like, you know, like it's, it feels as definitive as like Adam naming the animals or the idea of using some kind of... Uh, there's this idea in some forms of magic that there is like a proto-language, like a first language that actually has some sort of direct efficacy in the world, and that's the language that, like, you know, Adam used to name the animals, and it feels like that is sort of somehow, with the tone that Applebaum is using to just, like, pin Buttigieg to this, just to skewer him with it, like, it feels like a curse. I don't know, it's just, it feels like that kind of authoritative Adam language thing. But beyond this, though, uh, the idea of using audio in curses is not a new concept. So a friend and I have been having a number of conversations in the last few weeks about using audio and curses, and one of the things that came up was the audio curses of the popular writer and all-around horrifying monster person William S. Burroughs. Burroughs, perhaps unsurprisingly, was a man bent on destroying perceived enemies great and small, and one method he used to satisfy his bloodlust on the Church of Scientology and also a small London coffee shop called Mocha Bar was to attempt to use an audio curse to dislocate them from time. Burroughs would go to the target of his curse and take photos and record audio, and he would return later and play the audio of the same place from a previous time, thus hoping to sort of, I guess, push the place out of our shared time stream and into destruction. He explained his fairly grandiose and intense thinking about why this might work in an essay called Feedback from Watergate to the Garden of Eden. And um, here's an excerpt from that essay describing his attack on the coffee shop uh, delivered in an even and unassuming tone. Now to apply the three tape recorder analogy to this simple operation. Tape recorder one is the mocha bar itself. It is pristine condition. Tape recorder two is my recordings of the mocha bar vicinity. These recordings are access. Tape recorder two in the Garden of Eden was Eve made from Adam. So a recording made from the mocha bar is a piece of the mocha bar. The recording, once made, this piece becomes autonomous and out of their control. Tape 3 is playback. Adam experiences shame when his disgraceful behavior is played back to him by tape recorder 3, which is God. By playing back my recordings to the mocha bar when I want and with any changes I wish to make in the recordings, I become God for this locale. I affect them. They cannot affect me. Uh, that was maybe not the best uh, William S. Burroughs impression. By the end, okay, I feel like it really came out as JFK. Uh, is so, but we, you know, we hear this and we think: Is the theory that playing audio of a place, especially altered audio, makes you the god of that place, a sound theory? Uh, and that is, I don't know. That's difficult to say. But did Mocha Bar close? Yes, yes, it did. So, you know, if you're 
in a cursing kind of mood and can't get a personal concern, consider using audio. Though I do request that you don't use this audio since time rebuffing curse attempts is time I could better use baking cookies or jogging or something. Um, another interesting issue with curses worth considering is since some curses are actually repurposed love spells because ancient world love spells were often violent and coercive and really should only be used as a curse, can you repurpose curses to heal? This, specifically in the form of using poppets and voodoo dolls for healing, uh, will be the subject of a future Patreon-only episode that I've started researching, so watch out for that in the near, 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 near future. All that about curses covered, Frank Savilli has some astrological elections for us, so here is Frank. Hi there, my name is Frank Savilli. I'm an astrologer and a mystic based out of Queens, New York, and I'm here to give you some insights on the stars for the weeks ahead. For logistical purposes, I do Hellenistic and archetypal astrology using whole sign houses and the tropical zodiac, and all of my elections will be in Eastern time from New York City. First, I want to take a look at the new moon coming up. It's going to be on Friday, January 24th, 2020 at 4.45 p.m. Eastern. We see the moon conjunct the sun at 4 degrees of Aquarius in the 7th. We have Leo ascendant, and we also have the moon and sun square Uranus in Taurus in the 10th. This is the beginning of a new cycle that will last through August 3rd, which is when we'll have a full moon in Leo. At that time, the full moon opposite the sun will be T-square Uranus. So we can take all that together to signify the beginnings of changes to your career that can play out by leveraging key relationships in your life. It doesn't mean you'll get a new job on the 24th, but this is certainly a good time to welcome new relationships into your life, particularly ones that might advance your career. Alternatively, this is a good day to send that email to colleagues that you've been mulling over, asking if they have anything available. With Mercury in Aquarius and his exaltation as well, I see opportunities to voice your desires for whatever new opportunities these relationships might afford. I focus primarily on the idea of work here, but think about what it is you want that will grant you renown. It's dangerous to go it alone, so take this, a lucky break or a helping hand to help you make your desired moves. So far as rituals go, with Mercury so close to the lunation, this is a chance to put your desire to word. Write with intent and script the revolution you want. Write it in the present tense on delicate paper with light ink through the haze of your favorite incense and go from there. Next, we'll look at Tuesday, January 28th, 2020 at 3.33 a.m. Dark skies, this is a night of painful shadow work that will penetrate your dreams, your memories, and your past. We have Venus, Neptune, and the Moon all within a degree of each other at 16 to 17 degrees of Pisces in the 4th, and all of this is square Sagittarius Ascendant which is nearly conjunct Mars at 16 degrees Sagittarius. The Moon is waxing, so we see the potential for the night to turn into a good, hearty fruits of a very difficult labor. Lean into Pisces. What does the fish teach us? What do two fish with their tails bound teach us? How can we embody water? What rises from the depths? How much of this is ancestral? Have you dived deeply with your ancestors recently? Into their dreams? Dreams accomplished or left or let to die? What of your dreams? Which do you still hold on to? Which have you let to die? What if we eulogized lost dreams? 
What if we treated those dreams still alive with the same love? Can you sustain love when it's brought to the surface? Can you lose love and let it to die? What does this pain teach us? How can we feel it now? Where? Bathe and give in to sleep. That's all I have for you this week. You can find me on Instagram at anti.bishop for questions or readings. And until next time, be well. Thank you so much to Frank. You can check out Frank on Instagram at anti.bishop. Up next, we have my interview with Peter Biebergall, who is the author of Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll, Strange Frequencies, The Extraordinary Story of the Technological Quest for the Supernatural, uh, Too Much to Dream, and a number of other pieces and works. Uh, it was a really wonderful conversation. Peter is amazingly knowledgeable and just generous with that knowledge. A very wonderful man, and we got to chatting about David Bowie, about golems, uh, about technology and spirituality, and it was it was a wonderful, wonderful conversation. So here is that. All right, thank you so much for being on. Not too long ago, uh, about a week ago, we had the four-year anniversary of David Bowie's last album and his death. Yes. And I feel like we should really talk about that because i think you've referred to david bowie as rock's greatest alchemist <laughs> yes indeed how uh how occult was david well i think part of the problem with answering that question is even trying to define what we even mean by occult yeah. and so you know there are there are different ways in which people intersect with the broad range of what we have kind of collectively determined to fall under that umbrella. And that could mean, you know, somebody who uses tarot cards but doesn't believe in any of the, quote, old gods still right. is participating in this sort of occult imagination, which is the word that I, uh, the phrase that I like to use. And I think when it comes to somebody like Bowie and a lot of other musicians, that there was likely some very intimate knowledge and interactions with some of these ideas. Was David Bowie a, what we would call a practicing ceremonial magician? I don't think there's any evidence of that. Okay. Did, did he potentially, um, you know, play with... Um, Kabbalistic ideas in a sketchbook and meditate on those ideas or um, be reading something by um, Crowley, which then made it into a reframed narrative for a song. You know, all of those, uh, it's a pastiche, right? It's not, he got up in the morning and said the less, did the lesser banishing of the Pentagon, you know, I, I I don't know that there's evidence of that. We do know that he performed certain rituals under certain conditions. Um, there was a time when he thought that this house that he had moved into was haunted. Did he have like a hexagram on the floor or something when he moved in? Yes, I believe so. Yes, and so had a friend of his. I forgot I, the woman's name escapes me now. Um, who um. We can maybe add that in the comments or something. Um, 
who who performed, you know, helped helped him perform an exorcism. Um, there's the wonderful uh, image uh, from his recording sessions of Station to Station, where he's drawing a Sephirotic tree. And he even refers, you know, there's the great line um, in the song, uh, you know, name dropping Keter. And so, you know, I think for him, it's the way in which he pulled in a lot of different um, ideas and images and and residences around all these things. I know that later in his life, he was much more interested um, in Eastern traditions and Buddhist uh, thinking. So I'm not sure how much sort of these occult uh, practices made it into his later life. But so really, when we're talking about somebody like David Bowie, we can only sort of speculate on what his daily practice was as somebody who was interested in these ideas. What we what I prefer to do is to look at his creative output to see how that creates for us as an audience magical uh potential for sort of magical states of consciousness uh when we are engaged with him as a musician and so all these things get transmitted transmuted by him and then expressed and then we as the audience take them in transmute them in our own way right um and are, I hope, you know, I mean, my, from my own experience, have been inspired and enlivened by those um, songs and, and videos of performances. Okay. So there's been some suggestions that um, his last album, Black Star, with its various potential <laughs> references and also maybe references to the uh, Russian cosmist um movement might have been something approaching a ritual but like that doesn't seem to be the right question to be asking right with this or well i mean maybe it was a ritual but it was a ritual for the purposes of communicating and altering the consciousness of the viewers of the video right it's still an artistic expression but like alan moore would say those two things aren't separate right the magic is in the making of the thing. So there isn't that ritual doesn't necessarily for him exist except as it's part of his creative expression. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, yeah. And again, speculating because we don't know what he was thinking or what his intention is. It was all we can do is try to look at the symbols and gain meaning from them or but the problem is is you can do that with anything in a way especially somebody like david bowie where you can spin out wild conspiracy theories right or you can spin out really interesting thoughtful occult sort of you know um imaginings right so um it's 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 difficult to parse sort of exactly what any system of symbols represents um, unless you're sitting down with the person asking them, but I don't even think that matters. I think all that matters is the way in which they become part of our experience. So, would you could you extend that really to to most musicians who seem to dabble in the occult in some way or another, where really the the true occult practice is in the reception 
of I, it? I think so. I mean, obviously, there are musicians who who were more practical in their occult um, experiences. Somebody like, uh, you know, Psychic TV and Coil, um, who you could, you know, probably, you know, they were sigilizing and they were doing these things in their own life. But again, what is what does it matter that Genesis did sigils for his own intentional practice? What I want to I want to experience is how that becomes bound up in the music yeah. and the and the performances, and then I draw that in and and have my own experience with it um and 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 ultimately might even have my own um occult imagination kind of enlivened and then have my potentially have a change in consciousness right so i think personal practices of you know certainly there are many and then there are bands that really try to literally incorporate those things at the same time um like the bands from the 70s for example, Coven, Kings um, yeah. Dawson's band, who would, you know, perform rituals on stage, right? And so you have that where those things start to get um, incorporated in a way, but you also have to recognize that so much of that stuff that is happening at this performative level, that it's that that's when we begin to see that magic as a practice is performative in its actual structure right right the rituals that that it's performance and performance doesn't mean or theatrical doesn't mean that it's fake it just means that you know there was a time when those two things were inseparable in ancient greek theater the worship of dionysus happened via the the theatrical performance that the audience would witness and become initiated so those those things are 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 already bound up in each other performance and magic ritual initiatory experiences i mean the masons um are a great example in ter- especially um within the scottish rite where the you are watching theatrical symbolic representations of lessons and you become initiated in each of those Scottish Rite degrees by virtue of watching those uh, theatrical performances. Right. And that's something that I think um, both your books on on the occult in in rock music and also uh, Strange Frequencies, uh, your more recent book about the occult and sort of the inventor maker movement and technology in America. That's something that I think both of them really uh, demonstrate in a quite a lovely way. This idea that a lot of magic has less to do with what one does and more to do with how one interprets what one sees. This idea of ritual is a thing that one can witness as opposed right. to needing to directly participate in, or the idea that witnessing is a kind of participation. Um, yeah. I mean, that's the idea of, you know, even the shaman and the mask, where the mask is the mask is for the audiences that the the tribes benefit because they have to bear witness to the God having now, you know, been drawn down into into this vessel. 
So speaking though of of the idea of participation, you actually you open up strange frequencies with a discussion of your attempts to make a golem. Um, and I, it, it seems as though you never really quite got to the point of actually trying to build one exactly, with more sort of a research into how to. Yes. Which is fair, because, I mean, I know we have to accept all the narratives we have of them as filtered through, you know, the ideologies of their times, but it seems like it never really ends well for anybody. No, I mean, especially in the legends, right? And yeah. and so there's two different notions um, that are at play here, which is there is the legend of the golem, which is the actual construction, tells the story of the construction of this creature, yeah. which, again, you know, doesn't end well usually. Um, or... You know, my favorite story is where the golem grows so large that the rabbi has to climb up on a ladder to erase the divine name from its forehead, and then it falls and crushes him. Yeah. There's, there's also just simply the one where uh, the golem is put to, is is sort of put in stasis, and the legend is that it still is in the attic of this synagogue in in Prague. But in terms of of various thinking about Kabbalistic practices of which the golem arises, that there's this notion that the creation of a golem is intended to produce an ecstatic experience within the mystic as opposed to an externalized actual creature, right? Because the doing of it requires intense meditation and recitation i think the number was something like forty-seven thousand permutations i think i wrote uh, the exact number that you said not to not to kill them not to, okay i can't find it never mind please keep uh, going yeah something in the forty thousands, right uh recitation of of the of the permutations of the names of of the hebrew letters about it. It's ninety-seven thousand two hundred forty. Oh, ninety-seven thousand. Oh, I was off by fifty thousand. Okay. How dare you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that ecstatic experience is the creation of this visionary golem, right? Which is intended to bring us closer up the Sephirotic tree to encountering the Godhead. What's interesting, though, is there's one legend that says that the creation of a golem is really your uh, beginner's test to see if you have what it takes to really learn the magical techniques which the angels gave to Adam. Um, And so there's this, you know, again, this idea that the that if you can do that, then you're ready to learn the real magic. Right. So, you know, again, and this goes to this notion of that magic or these these practices, we, we often want to talk about them, especially in regards to like musicians or things like that as to, you know, were they actually worshiping the devil? I mean, in a way, it doesn't really matter. All that matters is the music 
and our experience with it, or in this case, these legends and our experiences with them or these texts and how we then want to work with them in our own practices or even if we don't practice just in our own lives in our own creative imaginations right i mean like even this idea of of building a golem in one's own mind the idea of sort of recreating the human body piece by piece by piece this is sort of similar to um what we were talking about earlier because i mean if you're going to build an automata either in reality or in your own mind you have to sort of witness every part correctly like it's another kind of the real powers and the witnessing because I, I I I hesitate a little bit to bring this up because it seemed like it was sort of a uh possibly an an unpleasant and emotional experience for you so it's like if you don't want to talk about this it's entirely no that's fine if it's, if it's already out there it's out there yeah all right um but you were looking in to attempts to capture the voices of spirits or ghosts on recorded media um and try to at one point speak to your late father right can you talk a little bit about um that tradition of trying to pick up spirits and then we can kind of get to this idea of witnessing at some point if i can remember to bring us back to it oh yeah sure so the tradition is um uh, traditionally known as evp or electronic voice phenomena yeah and the idea is that there are always sort of spirits um the definition of those also differs amongst practitioners disembodied souls interdimensional entities but but some disembodied forms they would like to communicate with us and you could say that we have been quote communicating with those spirits using various forms of technology since seeing stones right or or even looking in water or however ways in which these these spiritual entities attempted to cross over there was always a tool at hand that was needed some uh device so i like that idea of devices i like that idea that we are reap and that's sort of why i like thinking about these even the earliest forms of divination as forms of hacking because Mm -hmm. we're sort of taking something and repurposing it beyond its intended use or function um, or, uh, you know, properties. Yeah. Like a stone or or a mirror. And so all, so as we advance in our technologies, so too then can spirits use these new forms to communicate with us. These are the beliefs. I'm not speaking, and I'm not saying anything yes or no about this. Just right. You're just describing what other people describing the beliefs. Yeah. And so, um, using radio waves or these these and and potentially even digital, you know, forms of digital uh, media now we can have this experience. So some of the earliest forms of that were really just putting a tape recorder with a microphone in an empty room, asking a question, walking away, coming back, listening to the to the recording, yeah. seeing if anything was picked up. Sometimes you have to amplify it, sometimes you have to stretch it out or, you know. Um, other forms include 
um, adding white noise to that sort of give a template, you know, like a, a, a piece of paper, as it were, for the spirits to work with. Right. Yeah. They, they can need something, some them, uh, for them to rearrange, something like that. Say that again. Oh, some mana for them to rearrange. Exactly. Exactly. So there's that. Um, what you ended up later having were ways in which, uh, based on this uh, fellow named Frank Sumpton, which are these uh, boxes, these ghost boxes, where you use a radio and you allow the spirits to commute, you, you know, sort of uh, take bits from different frequencies and form some something some message and that's usually done by a radio that has a scanning uh digital scanning ability right okay. so it scans across the stations instead of stopping it keeps scanning and so you're getting these little blips of of uh voices and the spirits are sort of putting them together right okay. like a, a ouija board in in a way so so there are all these different techniques for doing that. The thing about EVP, which is interesting, unlike I think other forms of uh, the things that I, I usually look at, is that it tends to be extremely literal in its uh, both approach and its outputs. How so? The spirits are either communicating with you or they're not. There isn't a lot of ability to kind of work with um the ideas when it, well i think that there is and i can t give you some examples of people who do but when dealing with when, when talking to practitioners there tends to be a literalness um to the what the message is so for example and i talk about this in the book if you go and you watch some evp experiments on youtube often the ones using these ghost boxes You'll hear the sounds moving across the radio uh, frequencies. And the, the person who makes the video, the EVP practitioner, will caption the video. Yeah. And once you have the caption, it's impossible to not hear what you're seeing in the captioned words. And so I did an experiment where... I would listen, I would start the video and close my eyes and write down what I thought I heard, then rewatch it and look at what the caption was. And it was never what I thought I heard, except once I saw the caption, then that's what I heard. Yeah. I couldn't unhear that, right? So there's a little bit of expectation there um, and sort of front loading the experience a little bit, I think. What I'm excited about. Um, and I highly recommend uh, your listeners uh, read an article which you can get online by the uh, drone um, and experimental uh, musician Kim Cascone. Okay. Oh, Kim Cascone. It's called Errormancy. And it's about using um, glitch and error as divinatory uh, opportunities as a musician. Right. And so if you think about these um, potential kind of glitches in the matrix where voices can kind of find their way through, 
or words or something within the context of noise or jumbled up frequencies and you allow the um the the person to kind of have their own experiences with that and potentially use them in a creative way i think that that's exciting to me absolutely um so i think that that's so you know there were two things about this in terms of what trying to communicate with my late father or hear his voice. The one is, despite all that I'm saying to you here, I'm also extremely superstitious. And the, and I struggle with that because it's very, I, I wouldn't call myself, uh, you know, it's difficult to call yourself a skeptic within this space because it sounds like I'm um, a debunker and I'm absolutely not. Yeah. It just means that I'm less interested in the truth or falseness of these things than I am, again, about how they resonate for us creatively and in terms of uh, states of consciousness, Right. How, how they interact with our imagination. So would you – so in terms of your I, – I know you're – so you're less interested in in this question, but have you found yourself – like in a sort of, have you landed anywhere on the sort of reality or irreality of any of this? Well, I mean, there's a there's a couple of issues there. I mean, so I could say yes, I believe that there. You know, I'll say it sort of in this in the simplest way for my personal. I do not believe that consciousness is only a brain activity, a physical yeah. chemical brain activity. Um, I believe in some divine reality. Um, I believe that, but, but, but the ways, in, but, but I don't believe that we, but I believe that the most potent ways of interacting with that reality is through art, through art, through music, through performance. And yes, that sometimes means ritual, right? But once, once we take those, ex take those creative representations and we and then we put, draw them through and try to make them literal then you've lost me okay so um language any any attempt to talk about these things is limited by the fact that we have to use words anyways mm. and words even though we like to think words can be literal i don't think that they literally can tell us anything about the nature of the universe yeah. They're always metaphors. It's right? a closed um, for its own self-referential self meaning making or something. Right, exactly. Now, math is its own language, which does a very good job of giving us things then like a computer. Right. Yeah. So so there are ways in which there are languages um, that, that actually result in these things. And I think that some magical language um, can alter things, but I think personally for me, it's more about altering consciousness than altering the physical world. I don't think magic can alter the physical world in the way that math can say. But I'm sure many of your listeners would disagree with that and that's fine. Um, They're free to email me um, all their angry responses to that. And yes, exactly. And well, let's read them. You should read them. Yeah. I'll uh, certainly read them. I might protect you from some uh, of that. <laughs> that's okay 
Um, but again, this isn't to say that G- I, I don't care. I, I'm not mad or trying to go debunk anybody that does believe it. That's the thing. I'm not interested in, in that question at all. I'm only interested in our experiences, the phenomena, how it affects our consciousness, how it leads us towards our own creative expressions of these things. So doing something like uh, putting a tape recorder, turning it on with the microphone, walking away, and before I leave saying, Dad, if you're here, let's see what happens. Yeah. yeah. Was a big deal for me. One, because I tend to not, my own spiritual practice tends to not have that kind of literal um, approach. And two, and this is the sort of, uh, paradox for me is there's a part of me that's extremely superstitious and did not want to hear the voice of my dad <laughs> on the tape recorder, you know, um, because I it's not that I believe in that way. It's just I mean, superstitions are a hard thing. I grew up with a mother who was extremely superstitious. So I still throw salt over my shoulder if it still yeah. I still I won't walk under a ladder you know all those things right I mean that whole uh I think there's a story about Oppenheimer where someone went to his home and they found a horseshoe over the door and they said this is ridiculous you're one of the most important scientists of the 20th century and you're 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 giving into something like this and he said something like well you know they tell me it works even if you don't believe in it so. <laughs> exactly that's right um so I think that that's so in any event I did not hear the voice of my deceased father. Um, And I also don't think that my deceased father, if he was able to communicate like that, would do that because he was a rationalist in the end. So he'd be Um, really angry that he was a ghost. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Okay. So that didn't, but to sort of, step back for a moment like when you talk about you were superstitious and you were kind of worried about it was the fear like where where was that fear is it that it would sort of change reality for this to be real in this literal way or was the fear sort of more that it's just a spooky thing i think if it was any other voice it just would have been a cool spooky thing the fact that i was actually asking to hear the voice of my father um probably was just too loaded emotionally right that if i was to hear him utter my name or something i can't i it i can't even speculate as to what and how different maybe the book would have ended up being you know had that had that happened but i did have an experience which i write in the epilogue of the book which is that this in communicating with my father and in trying to communicate with my father in this way, I was using an old tape recorder that he had owned, uh, an old reel-to-reel, a portable reel-to-reel tape recorder. And I was fiddling around with it in the living room at the time, getting it ready for the next, what I was going to use it, and my wife and son um, were in the room. And I had an old uh, tape uh, that I put on, and it had my mother singing on it. And it must have been when she was in her early 20s. Now, my son had never met my mother. Yeah. Um, and we all sat there listening to this and being sort of utterly mesmerized by it. And it 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 elevated for me the notion that 
whether literally or metaphorically, my mother's spirit was with us in the room at that moment. And my son got to have an interaction with her that prompted all kinds of things in his own imagination, in his own consciousness. My wife had her own. I had my own. And that's how magic works for me. That's that's how it works. And it doesn't again. And this goes to that when we when we capture when we create these experiences either again through ritual or through performance through music through art something changes in us there i mean if you want to say that yes magic can change reality i mean this again i i i'm really stuck on alan moore's sort of points about this but when you create a work of art or when i play this tape of my mom for example I was actually changing reality. I was bringing something into the room and something to bear that had not existed before. Yeah. And a work of art does that in extremely profound ways. Right. Um, and so it, it is a form of magic and that it now has manipulated reality and given us something new um, via the intention of the artist. Right. Right. I mean, that makes, I mean, I've been thinking a lot recently about how our most potent realities seem to be the ones that we do not experience directly, but are mediated for us in a lot of ways. Like the idea that, you know, honestly, and I don't want to bring politics into this because I feel like it's a great way for everyone to start shouting. But, um, you know, thinking a lot about the Democratic primary and like talking to my parents, you know, I, I'm on Twitter a lot. My parents watch TV a lot and our understandings of how these primaries are going to like, you know, with all this, this huge cast of characters that none of us have ever met, we will never directly encounter, but our, our ideas of how things are just happening on sort of a empirical level, like what has transpired, who are these people completely different because we're just receiving different media, different mediated experiences. So like this idea of like perception, creating a new reality, like those are the most potent ones we have. Yes, indeed. And those can be manipulated um sometimes to nefarious ends right i mean i think the propaganda is a very good example right of how that can happen or even how the mob you know can act in ways that the individual might never act right um, and then you create mafia, like the larger the yes exactly oh yes exactly like a mob mentality right right um and reality in some ways changes right for the group that if you pull the individual out and you have them look at it it might not be the same right so those things are manipulated now you know there are definitely thinkers right now who call that that propaganda and things like that a form of magic right and i think we certainly can extend it um to that way but i do think that there is something um i'm kind of I would never, ever call myself conservative in any form, except yeah. to say that I still believe that there's something valuable about um, traditions, um, even if that means um, upending them and reimagining them, right? That nothing exists in a vacuum, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and the problem is, is because there is no pure tradition anyways, right? It's all a synthesis. This idea that there's, um, 
you know, this whole idea of, um, you know, the, uh, a, a, tra- a magical transmission that extends back to um, some ancient time that's in it, that has made it to us in its pure form is not something that I accept. And I, I don't think a lot of scholars accept it, but I personally don't accept it because even if you look at something um, like Kabbalah, which is a very is 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 inherently Jewish insofar as that its original intention was to act as a uh, different kind of interpretation of the Torah to to unpack and find the secrets, um, these mystical secrets. The Kabbalah itself is a synthesis of you know Gnostic ideas and and other things that that have made their way into the people that were developing these techniques right um so even something that relies heavily on its tradition to function is still itself a synthesis right is synthetic um and that's fine you know that doesn't make anything less um functional as a as a practice i mean i think the hermetic or you know what we consider western the sort of foundation of western esotericism today which a lot of it is drawn from the hermetic order of the golden dawn I was talking to somebody the other day and I thought, why did they bother with this whole sort of narrative of the secret chiefs and and all this sort of why not just say, hey, you know, it'd be really cool. Let's take all these things from all these different traditions, some cabal over here, some tar over here. Um, a lot of us are artists. We could bring color magic into this you know let's 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 make something new let's make something new that would work for this time um of the of the world when people are hungry sort of for a new spiritual thing that's not christian um not but but still feels a little bit rational and and let's create some ritual you know it still would have worked (laughs) It still would have been, you know, let's go back to some old grimoires and see if we can draw some things from the key of Psalm. You know, let's instead of creating this thing that ended up, you know, having so much, you know, in some ways ended up breaking apart the um, the whole uh, fellowship, because this one said that they got the secret message from the chiefs. And this one said, no, they got the secret, you know, um, and so this idea that there was this this pure transmission that was given, um, I think, doesn't always allow us to have a more uh, playful and authentic uh, interaction with the traditions that we're really trying to synthesize. Right. And I think that that's maybe my, that's my lecture for the day. <laughs> no, that's great. I mean, like, that's a really good point, because I feel like that is the difference between, say, like the hacker ethos in magic. And exactly. Approaching a kind of ownership. Where, you know, you can control something the way that, say, a traditional religion might, a traditional religious sort of practice might be controlled in some authoritative sense. So it's interesting because I was going to ask you at some point, what do you think in, you know, in looking at occultists for so long, what do you think magic can do for people that religion doesn't seem to? But, I mean, in a way, they're kind of not separate categories. I don't think so. I mean, you know, I mean, I think, first of all, it's really important that that all f- most well um there's right now um is the time uh the last couple of weeks 
are the start have been the start of the cycle um, to read the Talmud. Okay. Uh, for Jews, so you read a, a portion a day. It's very intense. It's it's very difficult reading. The Talmud is very uh, debates about little minute points of the law. When you're supposed to pray, when you go to at night, what when do they mean by night? When you get into bed or when the sun or the sun goes down or when you can see the stars? What if you were out at a party and you were drunk and you came home late? Can you still say the prayer? You know, very. But inside of all of this, there are angels and demons and magic spells and all kinds of strange things you would not expect to find in a, a, a Jewish legal text of this Im, Im, import, you know? Yeah. So there's all the ways in which, you know, these things are embedded in the traditions, even though these are traditions that historically have been seen to be opposed to these kinds of practices. Right. right. I think one of the great examples are the Mormons who the so Joseph Smith was an expert magician. He used scene stones to treasure hunt, divining rods. It's thought that uh, the glasses that he used uh, to read the book of the, the, the lenses he used to read the um, the Book of Mormon were his scene stones um, that he had used for other forms of divination, right? So when these practices are often in the service of the divine or the notion of the divine that these traditions have, they're not necessarily seen as the bad forms of magic, right? Right. So I just want to say that there's ways in which, you know, you could even argue that the worship an entreaty of saints um, is a form of that kind of practice, right? Um, where you know you are, uh, you know you are having this intermediary uh, spirit, right, to act on your behalf. I'm not in any way trying to suggest that Catholic saints are a cult or magic. I'm just trying to say that that these are ways in which we interact with our spiritual systems. That, that those words, occult, magic, start to fall apart anyways. Right. right. Okay. But now when we're talking about occult practices, more in the way that we mean today and magical practices, I think we also have to be careful that when we're making So there are uh, witches, I know, who define their practice as a religious practice. Right? So that what they're doing is for them religious, right? But then you have say maybe a chaos magician who doesn't want to call what they're doing religious, right? So again, but those practices, what do we mean? So I think that what we're talking about are practices, whether they're in the form of, you know, divination, um, praying to a saint, um, a, uh, a, a ritual that a coven is doing, a chaos magician, an OTO member, whatever it is, that these are ways in which we are, as individuals, opening up the veil to allow us to have this direct and immediate access to the divine, 
consciousness, God, the spirits, whatever it is that you want to define them, right? Um, without mediators, that we become in control of our own kind of spiritual path, right? Yeah. With with practice, not just through prayer, but through something that really feels like we are able to um, create something, right? That we're we're building something, we're making something new, we're creating an experience for ourselves. So I think that in many ways, you know, these practices that are often seen as, and and that's why I think these practices and why something like rock and roll and the hacker ethos are connected because they often feel rebellious. They feel heterodox. They feel like you're on the outside of what is considered acceptable practice, right? Yeah. And so if you're a young musician, say, um, in the 70s or 60s, and you, you feel like the music that you're making is already pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable um, or considered proper, or even considered proper within the context, not only of society, but of music, right? Um, And you are still wanting a spiritual experience. It only makes sense that you would lean towards spiritual um, practices that themselves feel like they are pushing up against what's considered acceptable or um, proper, right? Because it's all of peace, right? Nothing's in a vacuum. So you create a whole sense of your, not only your your music, but your very sense of self get connected, right? So it makes sense that Jimmy Page would be interested in Aleister Crowley. Right. Uh, You know, and whether or not did did, did Jimmy Page practice ritual? I don't know. You know, nobody knows that. I don't know. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. He certainly wasn't a, a uh, initiated member of an OTO or uh, fel- you know, um, AA I, organization. That same ethos, he probably wouldn't want to be an initiated member of something that required him to accept the authority of elder. <laughs> exactly. Uh, right. Yeah. He was a he was a working class British punk, you know, yeah. Um who wanted to push and and saw Crowley's also sort of liber libertine ethos um, as something that made sense for him. Um, and so that ethos that gets that ethos and those ideas get poured into his music. That's magic. It doesn't matter whether or not he actually performed rituals. I mean, I guess that would be a more interesting story if we had evidence that he had. But does us not knowing that make the impact of his music any less um, enchanting? Right. Yeah. Um, if, if anything, it's more so because we don't know. And so right, we can exactly. speculate, which is part of the, the imaginary world that we're able to sort of build through these sorts of art pieces. That's right. The problem is, again, is when we go literal with them and we say that the music is that he was possessed by the devil or that there was a conspiracy, you know, all of those things, which um, I think just take us away from from what I what I like to think of is, again, these these enchanted states. Mm. And that's what I'm interested in. And I don't think enchantment requires belief, literal belief. 
how did you start down this path? Because I, because I, because I know you 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 talk about in in your book Too Much to Dream about your early interest in um, Carlos Castaneda. Castaneda, yes. Never heard it said out. Um, But is this sort of Actually, could you talk a bit about him just for the, the folks at home who don't who might not know about uh, the teachings of Don Juan? Yes, it's it's uh, it's so Carlos Castaneda was an anthropologist in the 60s uh, that went and studied. He wrote with a Yaqui Native American, a uh, non-Native American, Mexican Indian um, by the name of Don Juan who initiated him into these religious and sort of cosmic, this cosmic world of, you know, witches and spirits uh, based on the use of hallucinogenic uh, plants. Yeah. And there ended up being, you know, seven or more books in this series we later come to find out that, uh, and he wrote these as nonfiction. Now, scholars later come to find out that probably most, if not all of it, wasn't true. If you still read them, though, they're great. If you read them as fiction, or it doesn't, you know, again, not mattering whether it's true or not, they're still these wonderful tales. Um, but they had a huge impact on the 60s counterculture, um, especially in regards to, and I think importantly so, the sacred nature of some of these hallucinogenic plants within their respective traditions. Um, that there was a time, I think part of what he helped people understand that there was a time and there are peoples for whom taking um, peyote is a sacrament. Yeah. And it isn't isn't about, you know, dropping acid, you know, at your friend's apartment. And, you know, not to say that that can't be sacramental for people, but just that it, it, it elevated the notion of what hallucinogens could be. And what effect did those books have on you? reading them as uh how yeah. how old were you when you came across those i mean 15 yeah okay so uh, i was in the early 80s and i was you know a kid who wanted i was interested in alternative religions and i i think i found a book you know on lsd in the library you know so i spent all my time in the library in this small section of religion and you know and there was all kinds of cool stuff in there at my high school library and there happened to be a copy, I think, of the first two or three of those books. And I was completely mesmerized by them. And I think I had already begun experimenting with uh, drinking drugs. Um, and so it, you know, really, it was part of the, what would later be an intense um recoding of my uh brain <laughs> chemistry you know because yeah. um, all this stuff I, I i was still young i was still forming my ideas about the world and all this stuff and i was you know reading other 
other kinds of texts as well, um, Doors of Perception by Huxley and all, all, the, all the classics. Yeah. And so, so that, that, but before that, you know, I'd always been interested in these things, but mainly more through their sort of um, fictional and fantastical elements. I, I had played Dungeons and I was a played Dungeons and Dragons. I loved horror comics and superhero comics. I collected Creepy and Eerie magazine. I bought, I had my first copy of Key of Solomon when I was 14 that I bought in Salem at one of the bookstores. I've got, got on the bus by myself and went to Salem and bought the book. I mean, of all the books for of magic that a 14-year-old buy, my first book on magic, I bought the Key of Solomon. As yeah. if, you know. <laughs> um, so all this stuff sort of formed my young imagination. And, you know, it still forms my, imagine, my imagination today, um, just not quite as... Um, uh, paranoid and uh, crazy as I had been back then, but so I mean, so this interest in in I guess you'd call them alternative religions or spiritualities, um, you know, it starts early. But was it has it always sort of mostly been this idea of looking at these things and how they might affect one's view of the world or have you given how much dabbling have you done say with that key of Solomon or did you when you were younger I mean it was I wanted to but it was impossible where was I going to get the skin of a toad and the go to the cave at night and hang it by an entry I mean it was I knew that it was impossible you know it was like oh maybe I'll try this one I would try to I tried to find like what seemed to be the most like there was a a spell of invisibility I thought what 15 year old wouldn't want to be invisible yeah, uh, practice invisibility. So I try, but you know, after read, it's impo- it was imp- it, there was no way any of these things were going to happen. But I poured over this book, you know, poured over it, and I don't know if you were to ask me then, did I think it would work or not? I think I would have said, well, I want to try to see. I don't yeah. know if it does until I, you know. Did I believe in the demons and the angels that you could conjure? I don't, again, I didn't think about them in that way. I was just, it was just a, um, I was walking inside, uh, I was, I was living inside of a particular, you know, um, a Borgesian world, you know, that was constructed by Carlos Castaneda and creepy comic books, creepy magazine, and Carlos Castaneda, my own stoned sort of, you know, so there wasn't a, um, there was no uh, structure to any of this, right? Some things contradicted everything else. Um, There's a, it reminds me of a game I want to try to play sometime. I get a catalog from one of the, um, from one of the uh, spiritual occult publishers, um, Inner Traditions. Hmm. Do you get that one? I don't know if you get that catalog. I don't. I don't get a lot of. I didn't know they did a catalog. Yeah, they did a catalog. So what I want to do is make them just for fun, and not not to make fun, but just for fun. Yeah. So there's book. There's books in there about you know everything from herbal lore to. Um, 
the Nephilim have come to Earth to different kinds of um, alien, uh, you know, whether it's UFOs or angels, you know, all these various things. And I thought it would be interesting to try to make a cosmological map as if every single one of those books is true. Can they all be true at the same time? Did the gray aliens know about the angelic messengers and do they are they familiar with the herbal lore that allows you to communicate over here with this spirit so i just and that's my so my mind at 15 was kind of like um a new age bookstore or an occult bookstore um where all of it was true and none of it was true. Yeah. Right? Um, and that's great. I mean, that was fine, except that, you know, for me, it didn't, I didn't end up having a good time with it because I ended up having a bad time with the substances that um, I was using to kind of shape some of those experiences. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but after that experience, I became very wary for a long time of interacting with those kinds of ideas again. Because yeah. I got burned, you know, um, and so it's, you know, it's but 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 I couldn't deny how much they were a part of who I am. And so what I wanted to do was find out if there was a playful yet respectful way that I could interact with these things. Um, and I realized the most important thing for me to be able to do that, especially as a writer was to not be set out to try to prove or disprove anything, but just to go and in, go into them like um, like a playground and just enjoy them and have these experiences and interactions and um, be again. I think for me it's about states of enchantment, which yeah. I had had inklings of when I was very young, um, but I think for me personally. Um, the mix of in, of seeking enchanted states with a proclivity towards certain kinds of substance addiction made for a bad time. Right. Um, so what I wanted to try to do is could I just extract the enchanted uh, mindset from from that, um, which I hope comes through in the work. Yeah. I mean, I think it does. Um, and speaking of the work, because we are kind of coming up on an hour here, and I don't want to take yeah sure too much of your time. Um, but uh, what's on the horizon right now in terms of uh, in terms of the work? It's okay if you don't want to talk about it. Like yeah, this. no, there's a couple of things. I mean, I would say, well, one thing I will mention. Um, there's a couple of things that I I want to hold off on making any specific announcements about. But um, but one thing I will say that has been a, a, a project that I've been working on with my friend Gareth Branwin. Gareth Branwin is somebody who is very deeply uh, connected to the maker movement. And he was one of the first sort of writers about cyberpunk and um, terrific guy. He has an amazing book. I urge your uh, listeners to look up called Borg Like Me. OK, that and, sounds um, funny. Yeah. And um, he and I are working on a role-playing game, a tabletop role-playing game that is also a system of magic. Hell yes. Amazing. 
Yeah. So um, the idea there, again, is essentially what we're saying is that the parts of our consciousness and our imagination that um, play something like a role playing game and the parts of our consciousness and our imagination that perform um, magic or, you know, perform magical rituals and techniques that they're on the same spectrum of, of thought. And so we're basically just combining them. Um, so we've created, for example, a technique of a sigil, a sigil system and divination system that uses um, role-playing dice and, uh, and role-playing like tables um, to generate sigils. Um, so that's, that's where that is. It's, it's, uh, we've been working on it for years. We're hoping, uh, at some point to actually have a beta of it for people to look at, but. I am so excited for that. Please. I mean, you know, no pressure, but please do. Yeah. Do you play you a tabletop gamer? I'm, I've started getting into it kind of late in life and it's a source of immense joy because I think it feels like this is, I, I, this is a controversial statement. It feels like doing improv in a way that is less embarrassing than improv is. Exactly. Yes, indeed. Okay. So you've got the, you've got the, the game coming up. Anything else uh, you're uh, building? Um, no, I'll, 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 that's all I would say about the current work right now. There's a couple of things I think, but there, I need nothing's, I want to wait till something's signed as it were. <laughs> yeah, no, totally fair. Um, <laughs> okay. So um, I think that's mostly everything from me, except here's a, here's a question. Um, so uh, just like rapid fire real fast for a second. Um out of all the pieces of sort of magical technology or religious technology you come across, which one do you think is your favorite and which one do you think might have been sort of the closest to actually having some kind of real potency to it? So I so I think my well I'll say two things. For my way of thinking about the world, I think for me uh, the Sephirot um, is has been very impactful um, in Kabbalah. Um, in terms of practice, I don't know if I would call it a cult practice, but it's divinatory practice. For me, uh, the one that I find the most potent is the I Ching. Interesting. Yeah. How, um, how often do you do the I Ching? Because I feel like that's usually a sort of like once a year kind of thing for a lot of people. Yeah, not not that often. Um, I could do it more. I, I mean, I there's no reason why I shouldn't do it more or couldn't do it more. But yeah, it tends to, it tends to, um, you know, it's not the kind of thing with like a tarot deck. You might just pull a card a day just to get a, you know, it, it's, um, yeah. But I think that for me, I found that not that I haven't had other good, you know, I've had really great tarot readings in my life and things like that. But, um, the I Ching for me, um, as a personal, kind of uh meditative divinatory process has been really key amazing and is there any sort of it's funny because usually when i interview people who like i think identify much more strongly as like i'm a practitioner first and foremost and that's what i do it's it's it makes sense to sort of ask like is there like a golden nugget that you want to leave listeners with on the way out the door um but i mean 
honestly, I feel like your perspective on that would be so much better because you're both sort of like in and out of the world of this stuff or you're in it, but like in a completely different perspective than a lot of the sort of very committed, like, oh, I'm a witch. That's who I am kind of folks. So like, is there like a golden nugget you'd want to leave? Yeah, I mean, I guess, again, this idea that that you don't need that we don't need to believe to be enchanted. I love it. That's amazing. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for asking me. Yeah. Really great. And uh, hopefully we'll see this again soon. The next I hope time. so. Yeah. Like when, uh, when that board game comes out or the tabletop game comes out, I, uh, I'm going to be knocking on your door. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we'll be looking for beta testers, so I'll keep you in mind. Oh, my God. That would be <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been great. Yeah, great. Let me know when it goes up. Thank you so much to Peter Biebergall for taking the time and for, for having such wonderful and thoughtful answers to these questions. Um, please do check out his books, Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll, Strange Frequencies, the Extraordinary Story of the Technological Quest for the Supernatural, uh, Too Much to Dream, which is a memoir he wrote about his um, early experiences with going on a spiritual search and also uh, with mind-expanding drugs and so on. To follow up on something that we talked about in the interview, when David Bowie moved into the house that he felt that he had to exercise, I went sort of back looking at Season of the Witch to get the details on that exorcism, and it would seem that he tried to exercise the place basically on his own with the help of his then-wife, Angela Barnett, who, as far as I know, claims not to put any stock into this whole occultism business, but did say in an interview sometime after the fact that when they tried to do this exorcism ritual, the water in their pool started bubbling and a stain appeared at the bottom of the pool. And I guess Bowie felt that this was not a successful exorcism because he did try to move out, or they did successfully move out shortly thereafter. Anyway, this has been the uh, first episode of Witch Hassle of the New Year. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any uh, questions for our research department, by all means, please send those in via Twitter at Witch Hassle or on Instagram at Witch Hassle. You can also send those via the Patreon, patreon.com slash witchhassle, where you can go to support the show if you like, or you can go to cooperwilhelm.com slash witchhassle to send in any questions for the research department. Our theme music was performed by Sebastian Baverstam and recorded by Edward Lee. Additional music for this episode was performed by Kimiko Ishizaka and Unheard Music Concepts. I am your host, Cooper Wilhelm. Good luck with the work ahead. Mm-hmm.